Hi, my name is Lucas Spivey, host of Culture Hustlers, and I'm guest spotting today on The Lonely Palette for my dear friend Tamar. Tamar and I are two of the podcasters in the Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, but we have something far deeper in common. You see, Tamar is the world's leading art historian in all matters of substance, and I, I have a minor in art history. I'm sorry, who are you? Oh, hi. I'm Lucas Spivey, the host of the podcast Culture Hustlers, where we ask the question, hey, uh, artist, you make art, but how do you make a living? And I've asked this question to thousands of artists, designers, writers, performers, and makers across America, and I record the podcast inside, you guessed it, a 1957 Shasta camper trailer that I'm taking to every state in America. This episode comes from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I brought my rolling recording studio to meet 1,400 artists and over half a million visitors to the event. We interviewed some of these artists, and lo and behold, one of the artists we interviewed, Leandre Lesseur, won the Art Prize Jurors Award of $200,000. So in this episode, 5000 to 200000 Leandre breaks down how she spent a $5,000 grant to create the installation, video, and performance piece that won the $200,000 award. She is inspiring, she's fierce, and she is grounded. You're going to love her story. So congrats on your baby, Tamar. Thank you for letting me share Leandra's story. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. You can't quit. You know, that's the one thing you need to remember in life is that when you're going through something, if you quit, you're giving up on yourself, you know? Hey, what's up? This is Culture Hustlers, where we talk with artists, designers, performers, writers, makers, and other entrepreneurs on how they hustle their living by selling culture. I'm your host, Lucas Spivey. I'm a BFA-MBA hybrid, and I'm uh, just uh, drifting across the U.S. in a mobile incubator. What is that, Lucas? It's a rolling broadcast studio inside a vintage camper trailer towed by a true school disco ambulance. It's pretty cool. I mean, it doubles as public art and a selfie destination, and it's installed as such at Art Prize here in Grand Rapids thanks to a grant from the Fry Foundation. Thank you, Fry Foundation. We're pretty blessed today because when we rolled up, we picked out a few artists to interview. And guess what? All the artists we interviewed <laughs> got shortlisted for Art Prize. Art Prize, for those of you who don't know, has two different prizes, and each of them are $200,000. One is a public vote, and the other is a jury prize. There's a lot of other prizes, too, but those are the two big ones. Well, we released some episodes, and one that we lined up next was with Leandra Lasseur. We really fell in love with her, and so we started editing her episode for this week, not knowing what would happen. And, well, we asked her at the end of the episode, what are you going to do if you win $200,000? And what are you going to do if you win nothing? Well, she gave her answers. And then, lo and behold, she won the $200,000. So, stay tuned for her answers on how she would spend that at the very end of this episode. For now, I'd like to introduce you to this episode's co-host and producer, Jess Thayer. Hi, I'm Jess Thayer, and I'm an audio and visual artist based in Boston. 
I flew out to Michigan to Art Prize to envelop myself with the more than 1,200 artists and tens of thousands of people all converging on the welcoming city of Grand Rapids. Little did I know how profoundly moved I would be by the caliber of the artwork, the discussions, and inclusion by the people that I met during my time there. One place in particular captured my heart very quickly, which was at Public Space 415 Franklin Street in the southeast part of the city. Repurposed by a group called Sight Lab, what was a former Christian Education Academy of Dutch Heritage turned social service office serving an impoverished and predominantly black population was now a liberated space and venue for 14 bodies of compelling work at Art Prize. I was enamored by the storytelling happening within several projects throughout the three floors and found myself making repeated trips to take part in what felt like a new history for that place. The building itself was largely unrenovated without power on the upper floors, peeling paint, demolition, and debris. Yet on the second floor, there was a darker room, a room that seemed private and cared for, even though it was dimly lit. I met Leandra Lesseur as she entered the space, carrying a 35-pound cinder block, put it down in front of me, wiped her bare feet, and went off to fetch another. Her piece, entitled Brown, Carmine, and Blue, evolved over a two-week period where she carried these blocks up flights of stairs, painted, built with them, kneeled, danced, and screamed, sometimes for as much as eight hours a day. In addition to revisiting the site and attending these different performances, I was lucky enough to see Leandra at the end of the day. What struck me is that both in the space and out of it, she had this unequivocal amount of joy and strength. Being able to witness her work and be involved in the conversations we had with other artists throughout the whole Art Prize event is something that I am eternally grateful for. One of those artists, Ritsu Katsumata from Sight Lab, whom Leandra knew from college at Bucknell, graciously provided us with her original work, Heartbeats, for today's podcast, which I'm super excited to introduce because while many at Art Prize witnessed this transcendence, we got a chance early on to talk about what led up to it, what goes on behind the scenes into making something with so many integral parts, and have it be something that truly speaks to your identity beyond the piece itself. I believe the most important thing you can do as an artist is to be all in on your mission, and I've never met anyone more all in than Leandra Lassure. Hi, my name is Leandra Lassure. Currently live in Jersey City, New Jersey. Originally from the Bronx, also lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am an artist. My first two years of high school, I went to a predominantly black school. I had a lot of great friends there, and my mom wanted better for me, so she actually switched me to a private school, which was then predominantly white. So I had a lot of things that kind of taught me how to respond to people. Being the only black woman in my class at some points in times, having certain microaggressions happen, really kind of taught me about life and the reality of what you will face in life being you know, who you are and what you identify with. When I was at the first school, it was almost like everything came natural. But as I switched schools, not only was it this idea of being like less diverse, but it was this privilege that I wasn't attuned to. Like I had no idea what that meant to, you know, have things and not have to worry about anything. Growing up all my life, you know, my mom always worried about finances. My mom always worried about, you know, where we were gonna get our next meal in, in some situations, if we were gonna have a roof over our head, but she always made sure that I had that. But seeing people in a way, I don't wanna you know, say this, but in some ways carelessly kind of live their life, not worrying about those things was really kind of different for me to interact with. 
Was there an anticipation? Did you have to set yourself up to make that change? I used to have to prepare myself for conversations. Like, how will I talk about my life so that people won't think that I'm below them, but instead think that I'm equal. Um, because of where we lived, I used to have to get to school three hours before school started. So I used to go into our locker room and just sleep there so that people wouldn't see me kind of just sitting outside. Most of my classmates had cars. They could literally show up to school five minutes before school started. But for me, it was always kind of like I had to get there so early every single day. Um, and those are just like small things that you're like, well, that's not a big deal. But for me, it seemed like such a big deal because I didn't have the access that other students in my class had. And so I felt like if they knew that I did that, they would think that, oh, you're in a like really rough situation and you're probably going through some things. And I didn't really want people to think that of me or to necessarily feel bad for me. As a kid and you're kind of hiding half of your life, is there something that's really allowing you to break out of that throughout the day? Is there something you do every day that's getting you to open up? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm gonna be honest with you, basketball was that for me. It was my release at that point in time in my life and it was the way that I got everything out. And that was my way to kind of connect with people. That was my way to show people that I have strength and you have to kind of recognize me because you know I know this game, I know how to play it. So. That was it for me. After high school, I actually went to Pennsylvania to go to college um, on a full ride for basketball. And that's actually when I started getting into art. Um, and the reason being, for me, basketball was always that release and that therapy. When I got to college in Pennsylvania, basketball became something that was very depressing. I had a coach who mentally and physically just tortured us. Um, and so when I started learning about art, in all of my art history courses, and I actually started taking photography classes, going in the dark room. I used to spend like six, seven hours in the dark room, just in there, like creating prints. And it just got my mind off of everything else that was happening. That switch happened. Now, instead of basketball being my therapy, art became my therapy. And for me, that's kind of what catapulted me becoming an artist and who I am today. Is there something about moving your hands or is it just being in the dark? I think it's both. I mean, obviously being in the dark is like you can't see anything. It, it becomes like this meditative practice. Being able to kind of use your hands to create something. You create something, they view it in connecting with someone. So for me, it was both. Um, and it was a way for me to really find something else that kind of took me to this point of love and joy and peace and all of these things that I really always continue to search for in life. Where do you see a future starting to take shape for you in college? So I didn't think I was that great at photography when I started out because I used to look at a lot of my classmates who are like doing amazing things and I used to say okay I have to get to this point where I can create in a way that like really speaks to what I'm trying to say but beautifully. I remember my senior year of college I spoke to my advisor and it was probably the worst meeting I've ever had. He literally said every negative thing you could say about someone who is trying to aspire to do something. He basically told me that he doesn't think I would make it in the arts because my work's not that great. And if I wanted to do something as far as art history, I'm not that great of a writer. So like he just didn't think I was gonna do certain things. So I left that really down and out decided that instead of you know going out into the world and trying to figure it out i wanted to go back to school i didn't feel i had that identity to really like stand strong as an artist and know what i needed to do next people would ask me what do you do and i couldn't tell them i was an artist because i felt embarrassed i didn't think i was i felt i had to do 
more to create that identity for myself. To go back to school, to go to SCAD, was uh, something that really helped create confidence in, in my work. I realized in that moment, I thought I was either gonna be making the perfect decision or I was gonna be making the worst decision. And honestly, I think a lot of people deal with that struggle. And this actually helped me with my decision because I met people who were in their 40s and changing careers. That told me I'm young and I have the chance to kind of continue my career and do something that someone who's 40 years old is, is currently doing. So I applied to the Savannah College of Art and Design in Atlanta, got in there, and that was my next step. And I'm so thankful for that because even though some people think like that is a really crazy route to take, you literally just finished a bachelor's, why are you going for a second one? I felt it was important for me to really hone in on my craft. That decision was telling myself that I was gonna take that love seriously. And I knew I needed someone to teach me how to do certain things and going to SCAD really helped with that. You just leave school. Most artists are now looking at creating an identity. What brings you back to hone in on a craft, which is spending more time, more money, more energy? What about craft becomes important? When I was at Bucknell in Pennsylvania, I only had photography. I was only kind of just shooting, not thinking about making sure that when you're doing something, the whole entire project is perfect because the details are perfect. I started meeting other artists. I started meeting painters at SCAD. I started meeting people who were working with materials and just doing these sculptures that gave me the idea that I can work in any medium to give way to an idea and to express something and communicate something with, with people. I told myself, you are living life to try things. You know, you don't want to regret not having tried it. So I started just playing around with things and taking it from there. As you're meeting these other artists in Atlanta and expanding this idea of disciplines, how much does the place of where you are integrate into this identity you're building? I mean, I'm thinking about moving back there to Atlanta, being around my mom, that connection that we have, but also this idea of historical place, as you said. Atlanta at one point was deemed this like chocolate city. Being around a city that was in a way developing, but also being gentrified. When Black Lives Matter movement was really like picking up, there were a lot of things happening as far as these shootings of innocent Black men and women. And I felt that I had to say something about that because it was something that was specific to who I was. You know, these kids who were being killed and not getting justice, that could have been me, you know? Instead of me shooting landscapes or just regular people and not saying anything through those works, I felt like I had to shoot something that was important. The pain that I was going through at that point in time and understanding where we were at as a country and also where I was at historically in Atlanta, Georgia. When I first went to Georgia, seeing Confederate flags all over the place, realizing that there were people there that didn't like me because of the color of my skin. But that became something that was really important in the shift of my work and what I was speaking on and my work being more uh, based on this context that was really rich and deep in, in my identity. When do you start exploring this physical part of it? I created a body of work and I was speaking to the deaths of black males uh, who were being like just killed unjustly. And I had a professor at SCAD, Alan Cooley, who I love to this day. He asked me as a black woman, how does that affect you? 
you know what does that do to your life like how does that affect you as a woman and him bringing up those questions and asking me those things really like pushed me to think about if I'm speaking on something how does that you know add into my personal identity and like where I am currently at in life are also my past experiences and so I really started thinking about the things that I've gone through in life the things that those specific people may have gone through in life our trajectories and and kind of where I am at my potential where they were at their potential and how that potential was stopped you know um, and how that could have happened to me that could have been me that could have been any one of us based on like the way we live or not even the way we live just based on who we are and you know kind of how we identify and so that really again turned on this light bulb for me to think about those things think about really just identity being this basis for um, how we navigate life or ultimately how our life ends based on like a, a certain tragic situation but let's talk about the struggle of being an artist yeah You've got two degrees under your belt now? Yes. Okay, let's be real. How much of that is debt? How much of it was paid by scholarship? How much of it did your parents have to take on? Like, mm-hmm. like how did you make that happen? Two different bachelor's degrees. Mm-hmm. I got a full ride for playing basketball. So the decision to take on a second degree, take on all of that debt was something that was a little bit easier for me. I understand for someone else, it may not be that easy, but going to SCAD did actually put me in a good amount of debt. Um, and it was a decision I had to make, a decision I had to you know, be accountable for. My family told me that they couldn't help me. You know, No one had the funds, so I had to take out loans. I had to work. I was working full time while I was going to SCAD. When did you graduate? I graduated from SCAD in 2014. You're entering the world with two different bachelor's degrees. Yes. What do you want to do to make money at that point? I wasn't thinking of my art being a way for me to have this financial freedom because there were really no opportunities that were presenting themselves. So when I left SCAD, I stayed at my full-time job, which was, (laughs) hate to say this, but I was working at the world of Coca-Cola. Didn't necessarily like that position. It was something that I just did just so I can have a check. All the free soft drinks you want. All the free soft drinks, yes. (laughs) I was addicted to uh, Pineapple Fanta. Drink that almost the every day. There. All the flavors. I, I'm just generally curious now because, like, you have an experience here at Art Prize that people can enter. Yeah. And you're working for the world of Coca-Cola, which <laughs> is an experience, a, a wildly different experience. Yeah. But still, people are traveling from far distances and paying money to have this experience. Yeah. Being there, like, you started thinking about like branding. Wow, people will come from a far distance to see something they don't know much about. Do you have to brand yourself? Yeah, that place is filled with happiness, laughter. Everyone who comes in also has that same happiness and laughter because they're visiting from out of the country, out of the state. I mean, that actually taught me a lot about branding, marketing, ways in which we kind of persuade people, I guess, to want to be a part of something. And I didn't want to take it to a point where my own personal work was going to become this persuasion because I don't ever want to persuade someone to do anything but it really taught me about a way to sell myself how do I let people know that I'm here how do I let people know that this is something that they can interact with and that was something that I constantly got working at Coca-Cola so outside of that I was just working like you know freelance stuff with my photography and then also I was working at my old school they had a bookstore I was doing that as well so I was I was all over the place did you do the wedding circuit yeah the wedding photography circuit. awful yeah how many seasons <laughs> of weddings did you do I did it for about a year and a half did you I think was... like for a moment you're like 
commercial photography. I might actually throw myself all in on this. No, definitely. That was never my um, my thought process. I literally did it just because I was like, I need to kind of have some type of flow of cash coming in. A lot of those things, like wedding photography and working for Coca-Cola, you're exhibiting happiness and getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. It's this idea of this exchange where we can buy happiness. <laughs> but now you're starting to discover as an artist that you need to draw from this happiness. Mm-hmm. How do you reverse that role as you're stepping out? I met so many amazing people working there. They're like my best friends now. I mean, I always showed up with a smile on my face, always showed up like pleasantly, you know, happy to work. But I always had in the back of my mind what I wanted to do, what I'm passionate about, and that was me creating my own personal work. For me, that has been drained, you know? I'm just like, I just want this day to be over and everyone's coming in like, yeah. The sugar crash. Yeah, I had a sugar crash there. Um, (laughs) So I spent another year and a half there after graduating and I just quit. I couldn't do it anymore. I told myself, I'd rather be happy than to have this constant paycheck coming in. So I just quit. This idea of like buying this happiness was always like this thing that I hated. So I wanted to really speak on the reality of life. You know, not everything is all kicks and giggles or joyful, but there are people dealing with really painful things and finding a way to release from that. So switching that around for me was focusing on what really mattered within my work and what I felt would connect with people, not just on a joyful level, but also on a level where they can connect with their pain and be able to understand that that is also a part of life and that's okay. What kinds of recognizable things are you starting to play with? What symbols? Because Coca-Cola is a brand. Mm -hmm. You can play around with things that aren't brands like playing around with Black Lives Matter, playing around with the American flag, playing around with the Star Spangled mm. Banner, kneeling, playing around with these like symbols or symbolic gestures is kind of using this touchstone that a lot of people relate to, not like a brand, mm-hmm. but it's something that is relatable and sort of universal. I started playing around with it in my photography and how I was shooting certain people. So I started creating these works where, for instance, one work was my friend and the flag is over his head. So it's this idea of what does this representation of this symbol mean to someone who's black living in America and the way that it's draped, it's almost like this hood, this like thing that's kind of weighing him down. Playing a lot with that in the the content of my photography, but really started playing with materials and the symbolism with materials when I started working on my performance work and my installation works. And that actually came a little bit further down the line after I moved back to New York from Atlanta. Because when I was in New York, there was this period where I just stopped creating because I felt like I couldn't get anything out of photography. I could throw a bar at someone in a photo, but like, would that really get the message across? What was the first time that you made some bank with conceptual fine art? When's the first time you were like, okay, I actually covered my ass in this one? So that was actually last year. I did Art Prize last year, and I had some video works that spoke to some of the earlier photography work based on some of those shootings and, and things that were happening to black men and women. And I was awarded a Contemporary Black Art Award here for five grand. And I've never got that much money for my artwork, which some people are like, oh, really? Like, you could apply for this grant and that grant. But I mean, applying for things, I was being told no constantly. So that was like a validation. That was a point where I was receiving a reward for something I had done, which helped me realize that 
this is something I can do. You know, this is something that's going to take me there. This is something I can continuously create and also be able to live off of. So what did you spend the five grand on? Did you pay back a debt or <laughs> did you buy stuff? How did you spend it? I saved it. I told myself I wanted to put it away. And the reason why I wanted to put it away is because I had this idea brewing in my head and I wanted to create this huge project. I started just writing, doodling, writing out things. I was going to a lot of shows in New York, like looking at various artists and the way they were presenting things. So I used to keep this sketchbook and I just drew things. Like in my mind, all of these ideas are like here, 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 here. It's like having 50 million tabs open on a browser. That was my mind. And that huge project is what is on view today at Art Prize 10. But didn't you have to submit that project like two months after Art Prize last year? After I got this award, people are congratulating me and I'm like, no, I, I need to get more out. You know, I have something else going. I need to, I need to do it. So I did a project outside of that in March uh, here in Grand Rapids. And after that project, I met some people, got connected with Paul at SiteLab. And that's when I started talking to him about the, the piece I wanted to do, being able to use those funds I received to actually make that work. The piece that's in Art Prize is, has a lot of materials to it. There's neon on the wall, there's a triple projection, there's you performing, there's also sound. How'd you cover all the costs for that? Did you make the neon, like in your basement? Or no, did you have to no. hire, hire that out? <laughs> like, how'd you do that? I thought about that. There was a guy in Jersey I contacted first about the neon. He sent me a quote for 14 grand. And I'm like, can't do it, that's insane. Where would I get that money? So I'm like, at that point, that's when I started researching. Found a guy in Detroit, sent him an email, who responded so quickly, and he actually got what I was trying to do. He was very excited about creating the work, and he wanted to meet with me in person, so I met him at his studio. The cost that, that he gave me was, I think it was close to like 1800 for all of the, the neon that he created so for me. So almost a tenth of what the other quote was. Yeah. So shop around is the lesson. Shop around. Please do that. Yes. Um, you also have three projectors in there. I do. Um, I mean, did you did you rent those? Did you buy them? I bought did someone them. supply them? Yeah, so I bought them. Um, that was actually a, a lot of research on my part, which I always, you know, tell everyone research, you know, research, research, research. If you know what you need, research and find the right price and the right brand. There were people telling me, you know, you're going to have to get a projector that's like 40 grand. And I'm like, no, I can find something that's cheaper than that. So I'm an eBay person. I got all three of those projectors. Each projector cost me $600. So right. at that point, I was set. You know, I like had everything so that like, I needed. you're at like $3,400 yep. and you have a neon installation and you have three projectors. Yep. You drop a little on audio equipment too. Yep. You pulled that installation off for five grand and you, you I pulled it off the projectors? I pulled it off for six. For so six. I got some extra money from Art Prize with their Frey Foundation seed grant. Nice. And that was, you know, really helpful too. But yeah, six grand I pulled off everything. So this is like the the old tactic is like you have to spend more than you have and then the next year you're able to do a bigger thing, but you spend more than that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so you can do a bigger thing next year. Yeah, yeah. Do you run into any roadblocks to getting into this site with all of this digital equipment and half the building is torn apart yeah. and not running? So yeah, there were a lot of robot, uh, roadblocks. Obviously, when I first got into the space, Paul told me flat out, there will be no electricity on this floor. And I smiled at him and I said, I'm going to need a lot of electricity. <laughs> <laughs> I gave him a little bit of a headache, but he worked with me. They were able to get the electricity wired in the second floor area. And my father, who's actually a technician, 
came out, we were here twice a month, you know, just spending like three days at a time working for six months straight. And he helped me wire everything. He helped me build everything, get everything onto the walls. You know, I don't know how he did it at the end of the day, but when it all came together, everything I doodled in that notebook, all was in this space. The work that, that we saw here yes. uses current events. What are some of the the amazing things about using current events in your work? And mm -hmm. also, what are some of the disadvantages to using current events in your work? So obviously, the first amazing thing about that is people are able to off the bat connect with it. And that's because they understand what's going on currently. And if that's something that they can relate to off the back, there is that connection that you're making with the viewer. Um, and so I've had a lot of that, you know, occur, just me being able to kind of connect with people based on what I'm speaking to or speaking about um, and them being able to kind of take something from it. Uh, the disadvantage for me, I feel, is that being in a, a town like Grand Rapids, there's a 50-50 chance that you may actually run into someone who does not have the same thought process as you, who kind of feels that you may be attacking them based on what you're saying, speaking on certain current events, because they have different political beliefs or just different viewpoints, you know, in general. I'm obviously living in Jersey City, so showing this work in New York 100% of the time, everyone's going to be like, yeah, I get it. I'm totally down with it. Here, I've had some people come in and just say, I don't understand it, or some people, after I explained it to them, walk away and kind of roll their eyes a little bit, which is totally fine, you know, to each its own on what you believe and also what you kind of, you know, live your life for. But I think at the end of the day, the fact that I'm still able to get that content out there is powerful enough in the fact that if you don't like it, that's fine, but you still had to experience it. What is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self as a younger artist? I would tell her to continue believing in yourself. Continue fighting for your voice. Every time that you get a no, know that there's a yes coming and that the validation is not always from someone else. It's from you. It's from within you. That's really important that people understand self-validation. And for me, as a younger artist, I didn't understand that. I thought every time someone else told me no, that the project I was working on was not good enough. But it has to be good enough for you. And as long as it's good enough for you, that is the only thing that's important. So to my younger self, just continue to keep thriving, continue to keep existing, and continue to just keep validating your own work, your own self, because you're important and you will always be important. There's some awards out there right now where mm -hmm. you could win awards. You've just been shortlisted mm -hmm. for the jurors awards. You can either get $12,500 one or you may possibly get the, the big one. Yeah. The, the big one is 200K? Yes, the that's correct, yes. You might not get either. <laughs> what would you do if you got nothing? Mm -hmm. What would you do if you got the 12,000? And what would you do if you got the 200,000? Wow. If I got nothing, I would walk away with a smile because I knew that I was able to do something that I didn't think was possible about three years ago. Um, and that for me is a win all the time in itself. Um, I've met so many amazing artists. I've met so many amazing curators, just people within the community who have really responded to my work in a positive way. And so that is potential enough for me to kind of take this to the next level. 
if I now won the 12500 that would be amazing because that would basically put some money back into my savings account. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't have to feel like I was living like day to day kind of struggling. So that would be a nice cushion for me to kind of live off of just in regards to just everyday small things, but to also think about general next projects and what I can kind of do with those funds. And then for the 200K, never saw myself having that much money in all honesty. So having a lump sum of money like that is no way I can just do something just for myself. So I'm thinking about people specifically, like thinking about my own personal path and how I was constantly told no. And I had to really kind of just like pick up my bootstraps and, you know, really work my hardest to make things happen for me. When I didn't have as many resources as I would like, I would like to do something for black women in the arts because I feel like there are not necessarily a lot of opportunities for them. I feel like I would give back to um, black women artists who are struggling or maybe kind of trying to figure out their identity or their path. I, I think that would be something that would be rewarding and fulfilling for me if I had that lump sum of money. So $200,000 is a pretty big stack, but I want to immediately put that kind of cash into perspective. I've been talking to with Leandra, making sure she knows the tax implications of that kind of thing. 200K puts you in the 35% federal tax bracket, and that's not even including state or even local taxes. So 35% of 200K is $70,000. So Leandra has some pretty big decisions to make. How much of that is she going to expense, right? Because if she expenses 200K, she doesn't owe taxes on any of it, but she's not going to have any of it. So how much of that can she do before December 31st? And she mentioned giving back to young black women artists. So, you know, is she, is there a charity that she wants to give to or does she want to put together her own? She'd have to do so pretty quickly. She could also pay down her student loans, but know that that is not a business expense. So she could take that cash and pay down student loans, but she would still be taxed on it. So let's say she had $200,000 in student loans. She could pay all that off. Depends on her situation, but she'd have to pay 35% of that in taxes. So big decisions to make for Leandra, but this is a huge win for black female artists. All right, you wish you could have been in this episode, wish you could ride along like Jess. Well, it's pretty stupid easy. Just call or text 978-712-8858. You can Facebook or Instagram me at Culture Hustlers. Tell us your name, your city, your business, if you have one, and get on this podcast. You can follow the travels and the live stories of the Mobile Incubator on the Instagram, Facebook, and culturehustlers.com and check out more podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Our host, editor, and sound designer today was just there. Our creative producer is Axie Berman, and our theme is by the very talented Mr. Otis McDonald. And this is Lucas Bybee wishing you lots of love from Art Prize here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Michigan.